Welcome to Element if you are new. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables throughout the room. They look like this. And on this, what you're going to get is the verses we're going through and then some notes if you want to write some notes. On the back side, you're going to get a, uh, just a short recap of what we're talking about today. And on the bottom, some questions you can talk to your friends, your family, your gospel community about. But on the bottom throughout the summer on these little half sheets, we left you a section. And if you come across a question in something we're talking about or a question in the Bible that you've never really had answered, you can write it there, uh, throw it in one of the offering boxes, give it to Sarah at the Welcome Center. We would love be able to do that. We got three questions last week. Uh, two of them I'm putting on video. One of them I'm going to answer during this message, so they actually do get answered. You're welcome. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. You click on More and then Events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device, and you will get sermon notes versus questions, the announcements, everything that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? And this is 2 Peter 3.16, and this is Peter talking about the writings of Paul, and this is what he says. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Let's pray. Uh, Father, this morning we ask that you would take and move us to be a people who come to trust the scriptures uh, as they are written, as they've been revealed to us and that we would be those who trust you by what you have revealed yourself to be through them, and that we would walk in ways that would trust you, bring you glory in our lives, so that as you are glorified, we would begin to live in the joy that you provide. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing this series for the summer called Never Read a Bible Verse. I stole that out of a Dan Kimball book called How Not to Read the Bible. It was one little section, one little chapter, and I thought, that, that's a great title for a series. So we're going to do a whole series called that. Now, never read a Bible verse doesn't mean we never want you to read your Bible. It means we want you to learn to read your Bible in context. And we're going to study lots of things over the course of the summer. But last week and this week, I'm trying to give you a little bit of a foundation so these messages might be a little bit different than a normal message that you're used to. Last week, we talked about Christianity and faith and what it is and how we can trust what God has revealed, that Christianity is an historical faith. Today, what I want to do is give you four simple rules that you can remember when you pick up your Bible and you read it, because hopefully you're reading it. If you don't own one, again, there's one in the seat back in front of you. Or there's like a hundred that people left here. They're at the Welcome Center. Take one of those if you don't want the one in the front. Of the, or you can come on the stage and grab one. You can grab one of those too. But we're going to study lots of things. I'm going to give you four simple rules today in this. And when we talk about these things, we want you to come to a place, again, where you can trust the scriptures, the things that we have in them, because the scriptures are trustworthy. They should be trusted, especially when you come across something you don't understand. Uh, Vody Bauckham once said that if you want to trip up a Christian, and if you have non-believing friends, maybe they'll ask you this today after service, uh, but if you want to trip up a Christian, you ask three questions. It says, number one, what do you believe? And a Christian will say, well, I believe in Jesus. So then they ask the second question, why do you believe it? And the answer is usually because the Bible you know, tells me so. And then so the third question is, well, why do you believe the Bible? Why do we, and he said, that is where a lot of Christians get, get tripped up. Why do we believe the Bible? Now, some people are like, well, I believe the Bible because it's the word of God. 
Well, okay, why is it the word of God? Why do you say it's the word of God? And Christians start to backpedal at that point, he says. It's like, oh, well, my pastor said so, or my friend said so, or my parents told me it was so, or my grandma said it was so. Look, my grandma said some of the craziest things, and that is not the best reason to believe the Bible. Some people say, well, I believe it because it works for my life. Well, there's a lot of things that people think work for their lives, but don't. Drug addicts think drugs work for their lives, but it doesn't really work for their lives. Some people are very impulsive and they will jump into relationships or even get married because they think this person works for me and it becomes a total disaster. So those aren't great answers. And what we want to do throughout this series is help you to come to a place where you can trust the scriptures and you will have a good answer because they're historically reliable, that God has proved what he has said over and over. That's why we can trust them. And obviously we want you to help you to read it as well. How we read the Bible is really going to drastically change depending on how we view what the Bible actually is. And people's misunderstandings about the Bible starts with misunderstanding what the Bible truly is. So I've got four big things. I put them in your notes. If you want to write other notes next to it, you can do that as well. But I'm going to write these. Down. Number one is this. First, the Bible is a library. It is not a book. It's a library. It's not a book. Why do we call the Bible the Bible? Some of you will have Bibles. They'll say Holy Bible on top of it. Some of you have a Bible on your phone, so this makes no sense to you whatsoever. But the word holy, it means set apart. The word Bible comes as this word called Biblia, and it means books. It's a plural word. So the Bible is a book set apart by God that contains many books. Now, when we first look at it, you think it's one book because it's bound underneath one cover, but it's not one book. The Bible contains 66 books, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books. It is written in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, a bit in Aramaic, over a period of more than 2,000 years by over 40 different authors from various walks of life. Uh, there are people in this who were rich and poor. Some are from good families. Some are from bad families. There were kings and farmers and tax collectors and doctors and scholars and nomads and prophets and blue-collar workers and white-collar laborers who wrote it. It was written on three continents, Asia, Africa, Europe, and yet it tells one story, one story. And that story is God's rescue of his people and his creation. And so when you open the Bible or your Bible app, what you have to picture is you're walking into a library with scrolls and uh, maybe tablets that have been digitized for your reading pleasure. And so when you walk into a library, you will see different books of different genres, like there is a history section. And so when you walk to the history section, you don't intend to see books of poetry in the history section because you're reading a whole lot of history. If you go to a poetry section, the poetry is going to be written differently than the history section. History is details. Poetry or songs are repeated words and embellished details. And poetry looks different from different ages, just like history looks different when it's written in different ages. In the Bible, you also have a book of laws that were recorded millennia ago. If you go into a modern law library, that book of law is going to look different than law books that were written a couple thousand years ago, especially to a different culture. And because the Bible was written over that 2,000-year time period, different things are going to look different and feel different for the time frame in which it was written. Now, the Bible, with its 66 books, has two parts to it. It has what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. Testament, all it means is covenant, and it's an agreement between two parties. I am 
overly simplifying this, so please forgive me if you're like a Bible scholar, you're like, no, it's more than that. Great, great. Let me just simplify it for everybody else, and you can run on the track you're running on here. Uh, Basically, the Old Testament is an agreement between God and the people of Israel. Yes, it speaks to a lot of places and all times and places, but essentially it's this covenant between God and the people of Israel, how they would know and walk with him. You get to the New Testament, and that's an agreement that God makes with all people in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, well, the New Covenant, that does away with the Old Covenant. That's not true. That's not true. A better way to think about it is Jesus comes and he fulfills the Old Covenant. All the terms that were there, Jesus takes in himself. Old does not mean it's not meaningful. Old means it is laying the groundwork for the coming of Jesus Christ. And though the Bible has these different authors, standing behind all of those authors is one single author, which is God's Spirit. God's Spirit is leading and guiding these people to write down what we have. He uses those people and their unique perspectives. If he wants the book of Isaiah, he would raise up an Isaiah, and Isaiah will go through the things in his life that he needs to go through in order to write the book of Isaiah. And this brings about what the Bible we have today. The Bible is the primary way that God speaks to us today. Got it? Okay, deep breath. All right, number two, the Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. You're like, what? Okay, John Walton writes this. We believe the Bible was written for us, that it's for everyone of all times and places because it's God's word, but it wasn't written to us. It wasn't written in our language. It wasn't written with our culture in mind or our culture in view. So let me clarify so you don't totally freak out. You can freak out a little bit, that's okay. But the Bible is 100% inspired by God. We can have confidence that every word in it is what God wanted written down in its original manuscripts. The Bible is for all people in all times of all places, but it was not written to us in terms of our modern language, our contemporary culture, or with our assumptions in mind. As a matter of fact, we had a connect party a couple years ago, and somehow I got in this conversation, and I don't know how I always end up in these conversations, but it's probably my fault, but we're end up in this conversation, and this person is telling me the Bible is a philos- or book of Genesis is a philosophical and a science textbook, and I go, well, I don't, I'm not saying there's not things that relate to that in there, but I don't think that's the primary way it was written. Yes, it was, and I, I'm like, okay, they didn't come back to element, but it's just, it's, when we come at it with our own perspective, perspectives, rather than what it's actually trying to say, we're not going to see what's in the Bible. So that means we need to understand the culture in which it was written. We want to be able to hear and understand what the original audience would hear and understand. And yes, the Bible has tremendous insights and instructions for today, but I would not use the same mold removal techniques that they used when they were walking around in the wilderness. I will use Lysol and bleach and Clorox. Uh, God tells his people in the wilderness to bury their poo. You can actually use a toilet. You don't need to go in the backyard. If you're camping, bury it. That'd be great. But you get to use a toilet. You don't have to do those specific things. Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's towards the end of the New Testament. When we understand the larger ideas of the Bible, it's to reveal the story of God, what God is doing, who He is, our rebellion against Him. Him. The Bible speaks about our salvation, what God has done in the person of Christ, how it all leads to that. It speaks about our purpose and why we were created. And it also tells us what God has in store for us. So let me give you just a little example of how we can read something and not necessarily see what's actually there. Here's my example. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 15. Uh, Timothy is the Apostle Paul's protege, young pastor. He says this, from childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation 
salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the Son of Man may be equipped, uh, complete, equipped for every good work. Now, what Paul is saying here, when we read it, we think, oh, that's the whole Bible. When Paul says that, he's referring to the Old Testament Scriptures. That's what he's talking about. When we read that verse, we automatically think the entire Bible. Paul's words to Timothy is about the Old Testament. The Old Testament can lead you to the person and the work of Christ. It can equip for daily life. Now today, if we wrote a letter to Timothy and we said this, we would mean the entire Bible. And I think you can actually take this verse here to mean that, even though it wasn't written directly to that. Why? Because of the verse I had you stand for at the beginning. Peter says that the writings of Paul are on par with sacred scripture. And so you put this together in terms of what the Bible has in context, and you can use that verse to say that. Now, last week, I was talking about all these critiques that people have about the scriptures. They usually stem from failing to understand why and how the scriptures were written in their original meaning. Um, you have to understand the cultural context. Most people, when they become Christians, they start to pick up the Bible because, oh, Jesus loves me. It's so wonderful. And they open it up and they say, what does this say about my life? We think it's written directly to me. That assumes Everything in the Bible is written about whatever circumstance you're in at a given time. And I'm not saying you can't speak about your circumstance, but we think it's all about us. This is why we start to put Bible verses on coffee mugs. Psalm 23, verse 5, my cup overflows with your blessing. That is not written about coffee, okay? It's, it's just not. God does bless us, but it is dangerous to think that every word in the Bible is written directly to us. If you do, you're going to be let down in a lot of places. And when we are let down, we typically blame God himself. We don't blame ourselves for reading things out of context. We think somehow it's God's fault. It's not, you know, it's not my fault for reading it wrong. It's, it's his. Now, how about this? Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That verse was actually a question someone wrote about last week, and that verse has been taken out of context more times than I can ever imagine. Does God have plans for us? Yes. Does God, is this on? Does God have plans for us? Yes, he does have plans for us. God loves his people, but that verse isn't written to us. This verse is written to Israel to address their current situation, which was they were taken captive in the foreign power in this land called Babylon. Jerusalem was destroyed. The prisoners are hauled off to a foreign land. The point behind this verse is God did that to them. God's the one that did that. And so they're disappointed in God and what he allowed to come to pass in their life. And God says, one day I am going to bring you back. But what God says here, this isn't going to happen for 70 years. Israel is stuck in captivity. They hear these words of blessing and promise, knowing all of them will most likely die before they see it fulfilled. 70 years is a long time. God is telling them they are prisoners. They had forsaken him. He is disciplining them, and yet he will not forget about his people. God ultimately does not forget about us, but many times people take this out of context, and they say, oh, God has plans for your welfare, not for evil. He's got a future for you, and we think that's tomorrow. Well, what if God said, yes, yeah, 70 years from now, your grandkids are going to end up seeing the good things I'm doing. You're like, that doesn't help me today. See, this is why it's God's timing. It is what he wants to do. That's why we trust him. God brings about his ultimate, ultimate purpose. That's what that verse is about. But it's not how we think and typically not how we expect, which can lead to disillusionment when we read it through our own perspective and not what he's trying to say. 
we should not take nice sounding verses out of context and apply it to situations that may not apply to. A few weeks ago, and we were in the book of James, and I talked about Psalm 46, verse 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. And I spoke about how we need to stop about all of our needless running around and simply begin to start listening to God. Now, a friend of mine after service pulled me aside and said, I think you took that out of context. And I said, why is that? He said, well, because God's really speaking about Israel on this battlefield. It's, it's not necessarily an encouragement to find rest. And, and I disagreed. I thought I could use it exactly the way that I used it because it is a call to Israel. It does use battlefield language, but it's remembering who God is in the midst of that battle, that these people could stop freaking out because God does hold everything in his hands. And that's how I used it. In Dan Kimball's book, he uses this illustration of this old song called Puff the Magic Dragon. I am sorry if you are too young to have ever heard about this song. When I was a kid, I had the record, all right, the actual record. So it has these words. It says, Puff the Magic Dragon, Live by the Sea. Can you sing it? Frolicked in the autumn. This is why you're not on stage. All right. Um, <laughs> And frolicked in the Ottomists in the land called Hanali. This song is very popular. And so drug use is becoming more and more popular at the time the song comes out. And so people started to say, oh, Puff the Magic Dragon, that's weed. That's weed. And Ottomists, that's the clouds of pot smoke. And Hanali, it's this little village in Hawaii that's known for their potent strains of marijuana. Newsweek ran a story on it. And finally, the writers of the song had to speak up because they said it has no direct references in it whatsoever. Peter Yarrow, one of the co-writers, said when he was written, he goes, I didn't know anything about drugs. And this is what he says. What kind of mean-spirited SOB, say use the, I don't say the word, that SOB would write a children's song about covert drug use. And I thought, have you met our culture? Hello, Disney Plus. Like, we're going to have Snoop Dogg write a children's song. So, okay, whatever. They had no idea, like, what our decade would bring. Uh, the other co-writer, a guy named Leonard Lipton, he says this. Puff is about the loss of innocence and having to face the adult world. It's surely not about drugs. I find the fact that people interpret it as a drug song annoying. But why do you interpret it as a drug song? Because we view it through our own cultural lens and not how it was actually written. We must be willing when we look at the Bible to understand what it is actually saying versus what we want it to say or what we think it should say. The Bible was written for us, but it wasn't written directly to us. All right, deep breath. Five of you, all right, okay. <laughs> Here we go, number three. Never read a Bible verse. And this is where we get the title of our series from. Actually, uh, Greg Gokul came up with the term, and he says to always read a paragraph and not a verse. Now, some people object to this because I will read you single verses all the time. I had you stand this morning you know, for the reading of God's word, and I gave you one verse. Jesus does this. The apostles will do this. They will quote one verse. Well, when Jewish people did it, a lot of them had much of the scriptures memorized. And so when you would quote there, it would bring to mind all the verses that surrounded it. They were always quoting, but people would understand that more in context. When the Bible writers did this, they knew what they were saying in the surrounding structure. They quoted with what we call an awareness. And when I typically have you stand for a verse during the message, I will explain it in context of what it means. But that's not what a lot of people do today. I don't know if you have a favorite verse. Some people have life verses for their life, but just take John 3.16. I always call it the football verse because whenever a football game is going on, inevitably someone is down by the goalpost with their big old fake wig and painted face, and the song said, John 3.16. People are like, I don't even know what that means, but go John. 
3.16. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, that is true. It is beautiful. It is wonderful. There's great theology in that. But what comes before that? What comes after that? And we miss the idea of all these things of poles and snakes and being born again. I mean, there's this whole thing where Jesus, in talking about that verse, it, he references back to the Old Testament where the Israelites are being a bunch of knuckleheads again. These snakes come in. They bite all the people. We're going to die. What do we do? And God says, put a bronze serpent on a pole. People to look, tell people to look to that because that's where their sin's going to be placed and they'll be okay. And Jesus says, as Moses put the bronze serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man will be lifted up that I will take the sin of people on myself, that sin's going to be laid upon me. Just like that, I will do that. And then you get to John 3, 16. And there's just all this context of it that's really beautiful. Many times, the critics of the Bible, what they will do is they will take one verse out of context, and then they will stick it on a billboard or just complain about that verse. And yet, sadly, a lot of Christians do that as well. Bible verses are written in a specific time for a specific purpose. Every Bible verse fits within a larger narrative framework. So this is kind of how it should work, okay? You have a verse you like, great. Read your Bible verse, but then look at the paragraph that that verse is in. Look at the chapter that verse is in. Look at the book of the Bible that verse is in, and then look at where that book of the Bible fits within the Bible storyline. A lot of you watch TV, and so when you watch a television program, usually it'll say, previously on, and it's all blah, 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 and then it, it drops you into the show. I started watching Obi-Wan, had five minutes of those awful prequels before it ever got to the show, because it wants to know, where are you in Obi-Wan's storyline? When you read a book of the Bible, it's important to know where it sits in the storyline to understand what and why it was written. It's like a Star Wars crawl, right? Dun, 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 Emperor Palpatine, blah, 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 and then it drops you down into the story. The Bible is a story grounded in history, in history. It is inspired by God, and so often we lose our awareness of that epic story. Let me give you a verse, okay? Luke 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me, this is Jesus, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that will sound completely bonkers if you don't understand it in context, in the Jewish history of the word hate and love and how these things all came together. Every verse in the Bible is written in a larger narrative framework of this story. Jesus' story, his entire backstory, the previously on, is the Old Testament scriptures. Now, N.T. Wright, what he does is he will break the Bible into six different acts. Some people say, oh, there's 12 or 13. Some people say four. I like his six. So this is what he says. Act one is God creates and dwells with people. God makes a creation, an ordered universe. He creates a supernatural family, the angelic realm. He creates a human family, and he gives humans the ability to oversee the world and multiply in it and create communities. We exist in harmony with one another and God himself. There is zero inequality between people, and God calls this very good. And then you have act two. And this is where humans rebel. Humans go about their tasks. They're faced with choices. Follow God or rebel and do their own thing. And this is the point this character shows up in the text called a serpent. And the serpent shows up and says, God's not really as good as he claims to be. You know what you want. You should go get what you want. Who has the right to tell you what to do? You know what your heart longs for. Your heart is true. Just go after what you want. 
and they believe this and they start to go after what they want. Humans choose to doubt God's goodness and generosity and they start to try to define good and evil for themselves, but really all they found was the evil and they ran after that. And in the end, they destroy themselves. We call this the fall. They blow up the story of the Bible, what God originally intended. They fracture the unity that they were meant to live within, where they're supposed to live with unity with God and, and one another. And that's where sin enters the world. And this is where you get violence and war and sexism and abuse and false gods and slavery and egotism. The bomb goes off and everyone is hit by it. Every, everyone's contaminated with sin. Act three, God then, redemption gets initiated eventually really in the Abraham and the prophets, but God starts Genesis three, walks in the garden in the cool of the day. I think that's actually Jesus himself. He promises himself to come and redeem. But eventually you get to this guy named Abraham and God will make a covenant with Abraham. He will take him to a country where you, your people will be a blessing to the entire world. He promises Abraham, you're going to have a son. And through your lineage, all these people will come to worship who God actually is. Abraham has promised a son to a son to a son to a son to a son. That ultimately leads to God's son, who is Jesus. So this family grows. But as they start to grow, there's a famine and they end up in Egypt. In, in Egypt, they get turned into slaves. After centuries as slaves, in Egypt, they cry out to God, and God sends a descendant of Abraham, a guy named Moses, who leads Israel out of slavery and into freedom. We call this the Exodus, the Exodus, and it's a beautiful picture of salvation. God takes people from slavery to freedom to death to life by a definitive act that he does. God will make a covenant with this entire nation. He will set them apart from other nations on the earth. He will call them a kingdom of of priests. And this is where you get the Old Testament laws. All these things that sound so bizarre to us that sets them apart from other nations. So eventually Israel, they do get their promised land. They become their own kingdom, but they continue to worship false gods. They keep committing these sins against God, slavery, polygamy, violence. Even the best of their kings, David and Solomon, fail miserably. This is one of the critiques that people have about the Bible. Everybody in it looks terrible. Exactly. Exactly. I know we all try to act like we don't have sin and we're so wonderful, but the Bible shows us we are all messed up and God is the one who steps in to save us. They end up here looking much like the other nations. So God sends prophets into their midst to call them back to who he is, but they continue in their sin. So they end up losing their kingdom by God's decree. It's not a surprise to God. God sends them into Babylon for discipline. And that's where you get that Jeremiah 29, 11 verse in the middle of that. And eventually they return and God will promise a future king to rule forever. Act four, redemption is provided in Jesus. And so Jesus shows up and he proclaims the kingdom of God is arriving in him. Though people assumed he would start a war with the Romans, he would raise people up, they would go and take the Romans out of Israel, he would establish an earthly kingdom. Instead, what Jesus does is he lives the life before God that we all were meant to live. He will die our death in our place. He will give his righteousness to us. He will take our sin upon himself. Everything that we have committed before a good, holy, and righteous God, he takes upon himself. So our relationship with God gets restored. Jesus rises from the grave to rule and reign forever. Act five is the mission to all nations. Because out of this, after Jesus' resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes. He indwells believers in Jesus and restores them to life and relationship with God. And those followers are now called to go out and be God's ambassadors to the world as God is making his appeal through 
us, those who have believed, who have been saved, who have been redeemed. We are now, again, called to be a kingdom of priests to show the world what God is like by how we live, love, and worship Jesus and love one another. Believers are supposed to proclaim this great gift of salvation for all people. And so these believers, they start communities. And they start to invite people in and they worship God together. We as a people live looking forward to when Jesus comes again. Act 6. Act 6. Redemption completed where God dwells with his people again and redeemed heaven and earth. So Jesus comes again. There is going to be a redeemed creation that is established. The ending, ending is like the beginning. This isn't like Valhalla or Nirvana. Hebrew storytelling goes beginning, middle, beginning. And this is why redemption is restoration. It is bringing back again. So there's a garden with, a, with fruit and trees and leaves that heal the nations. Evil is done away with death and sickness and mourning are gone. God renews all things. He dwells with his people again. Can you understand why one single verse out of the Bible doesn't encompass all of that? Okay, five of you. The rest of you, take a breath. Okay. Fourth thing, here we go, all right? This fourth one. All the Bible points to Jesus. If you forget everything else, all the Bible points to Jesus. Genesis to Revelation. You do not see Jesus' name in the Old Testament, but everything in the Bible is pointing to God's redemption of his people in the person of Jesus Christ from Genesis 3 onward. So I'll show you something interesting. After the resurrection, Jesus meets a couple of guys. They're walking on a road to a town called Emmaus. And when he meets them, he has to re-explain to them what God is doing in the world apart from all other preconceived ideas. If you have a Bible, open to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24. If you don't know this, it is very hard to get people to step away from their preconceived ideas. Hello, America, <laughs> right? It's very hard. Uh, we, we have friends that agree with us. We read news stories that agree with us. We teach our kids to agree with us. And if something comes up that challenges our preconceived ideas, we fight against it. We don't want to listen to it. So you have these two guys here. They're walking along. They're discussing Jesus' death and all the rumors of the missing body. So Jesus shows up. They don't know it's Jesus because, you know, hey, he got crucified. It's like, Hello. So he starts walking with them. They don't recognize him. One of the guys' name is Cleopas. So he's like, what are you guys talking about? Well, what's going on? Uh, Luke 24, starting in verse 20, he says, how, uh, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him, Jesus, up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. It's a very important line. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Now, years later, we get to look back on this event and we don't have to see the trees. We see the forest of what God is doing. We know that the crucifixion is the way that God is and was redeeming. But Cleopas says, we thought he was going to redeem Israel, but instead he was crucified. He obviously can't be God's promised redeemer because he was crucified. The word redeem, how Cleopas would understand it, is to release from slavery. The Messiah is going to come, kick the Romans out, and we're going to be better. The sad thing is, most American Christians, we don't think we're in the same boat as Cleopas. We don't think we have these same preconceived ideas, but we all do. We just have different biases, especially when it comes to the Bible and the gospel. Cleopas thought the only problem he had in his life, the only slavery that he needed release from, was political slavery. How many Christians feel like that today? 
I just got to over. I just got rid of those people. Salvation will come and the world's going to be put right when everyone I disagree with is gone and the world becomes an homogenous whole centered around what I think is right. That's how a lot of us think. Cleopas believed and wanted Jesus to be like the messianic term, how they understood it. The son of David, a physical kingdom coming into the world to kick the Romans out instead of Israel really as the center of the, the world. Now, seeing the Bible as a whole, all six acts that you go through, you really see Jesus is the son of David. He is the promised messianic king. But like us, they were thinking if we could just have economic freedom or if we could just have political freedom, then everything will be all right. Cleopas thought the only problem he had in his life were his circumstances. And Jesus shows the problem we have in our life is our sin. That's the problem. And this is why when you look at the narrative storyline of the Bible, we've got to see us for who we are and God for who He is. The Bible teaches us that Jesus came because we are all spiritually slaves deep in our hearts to our own sin. And because Cleopas didn't see that, he didn't see his own spiritual bondage. And because he saw everything in the Bible through his perspective and not in the context of how God wrote it, he did not think he needed any other kind of redemption than a general physical lifestyle salvation where someone would come and clean things up and get rid of the bad guys. Now, how true is that for us when we read the scriptures? Do you understand what kind of slaves we all are to our sins, to our own perceptions? Do we see the redemption that we all need? Are we willing to let God change our view to see the world the way that he does? Do we really want the kind of redemption that Jesus brought? See, Jesus explains to these guys on the road, Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself because they had missed the point of what God was going to do. All the Bible points to Jesus, to the gospel. And that's where we have to begin and end our journey when we look at things in the scriptures. The Bible is a library. It's not a book. It was written for us, but not to us. Never just read a Bible verse. And in the end, it's all about Jesus. That's the foundation we have to set. That in the end, everything comes to the person and the work of Christ. It's why at Element, every week, what do we do? We bring you to a place where we understand that everything is about the person and the work of Christ. Every week, we take you to communion as a reminder of what Christ has done. This is why Jesus says, you do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because all of the scriptures point to Jesus. We are a people who are lost in our sin. The gospel is that Jesus came and lived the life that we could never live. He dies in our place for our sins to bring us to himself. He lays his righteousness upon us. And we then get to live and walk in new life. That new life is the result of what the gospel brings. But the gospel is that good news of Christ and what he did to save us, what God had promised all the scriptures, that he was going to come himself and save us. In communion, we come and we break a cracker as a reminder of Christ's body that was broken for us. You can dip it in the wine or the grape juice. It's a reminder of what Jesus did to rescue and save us as a people. If you would like uh, a gluten-free option, there's gluten-free crackers in the back. If you want sealed ones that other people aren't around and don't touch, there are single-use cups in the back as well. But we take communion as this reminder of all the Bible pointing to Jesus, that we are a people who have run from Him and rebelled, but God in His goodness has come to bring us back to Himself. Again, as I said, this is the foundation. This is the place where we begin and end all of our journeys is in the person of Christ. And that's what we remember today. Guys, if you have any 
prayer request in your life that's going on you want someone to pray for. Maybe you are in a place where you have all these preconceived ideas of what God has to do in order to make the world right that you don't see your problem being your sin, but you see it being something else. And maybe maybe you're getting a little vision of what that looks like today, understanding, yeah, my sin is my problem. We'd love to pray with you. We actually have people who sign up to be willing to pray with you. Grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She will connect you with one of them. We would love to talk about that with you and walk through these things and understanding what the gospel truly is. If you have a question, feel free to take those sermon notes and, and write it on the bottom and turn it in. You can send us an email. Send it to questions at ourelement.org and we will find a way in one of these messages or in a Q&A session or on video to, to answer that question for you because any questions you have, they have been asked and answered probably millions of times. And we want to make sure you understand how trustworthy the scriptures are and how the scriptures all point to Jesus. Uh, if you would like to give, we have offering box on the side wall. Element does not pass the plate. Uh, we believe that our response and how we give is a response to what God has first done in us. So we don't pass the plate. And so if you'd like to give, you can do that. That's why the offering box is on the side wall. And again, I encourage you to grab some of those sermon notes. Take those few questions at the end and sit down with some friends or some family, your gospel community, and walk through those questions. What questions do you have about the Bible? How often do you maybe get caught up in places where you don't see your life and the gospel being about your own rescue, but, oh, God's got to do something about this messed up world I'm in right now. Yes, I believe I want God to do something about the messed up world that we are in right now, but we have to understand that's not our main problem. Our main problem is the world is messed up because of our sin, and God has come first to do something about our sin because that is our greatest need. And this is what we have, a Savior, a Redeemer, who has come to rescue us. And if you have never heard that or understand the entire Bible is about Jesus, this is what we want you to know. And this is what we want you to kind of think about, especially in the next few moments, and especially as you walk out these walls. Everything in the end is meant to come back and point to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us as a people, and you would have us understand what a faith in you is meant to look like. It is trusting you for what you have done and what you will do. Not just in us, but the entire world around us. I ask that you would teach us how to have this this childlike faith of trusting you. I ask that you would show us who we are in our own hearts and our own lives. Because too often, if we're honest, we don't always think the problem is out there. We hardly ever think it's with us. And yet you constantly show that the problem in our lives is our sin. And the beauty of the gospel is you have done something about it in yourself. Have us come to a place where we trust you for what you have done to bring us to yourself. And then in that, Lay our sin down and start to walk in the joy that you provide. That the world around us would know better who you are because of what you've done in us. Your ambassadors, your priests to the world. That you have given us the ministry of reconciliation and so that we would be about that reconciliation. Being honest enough to share what our lives are like before you, how we still stumble and fall, but the goodness of who you are. That our honesty 
and love and grace would be a reflection of your love and grace that you've extended to us. So teach us to live out our lives in ways that worship you, that love one another, and understand that everything in the Bible is about the gospel coming to fruition. We ask that in your son's good name. Amen. And as Mikey closes the curtains, just take a couple moments right now, and you'll get rid of some of the distractions that are around you, and ask God maybe to, to show you in your own life. What kind of salvation are you expecting God to do? Maybe not in your life, but in the world around you. What kind of misconceptions have you placed upon the scriptures or upon your relationship with God? How and in what places have you realized that that your problem is not all that? Your problem is your own sin. And that God has actually done something about it. Take a couple seconds and and ask God to show you that. And then ask Him to show you and understand the great joy that He has given you in the gospel. That He has taken that sin away upon Himself. And He has given you a right relationship with Him. And that means you get to get up and live in childlike faith. You get to live a life of joy and hope. The Christian life is not about mopey, staring at our sin. It's about staring at our Savior who has saved us. So today, take some time to stare at your Savior and come and take communion, sing a couple songs with us, and head into the world as God's ambassadors, as God makes His appeal through us, His saved and rescued people.